A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 33. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 10. The Cataract and the Desert, Part 3. Mahatta, green with sycamores and tufted palms, nestled in the hollow of a little bay, half-islanded in the rear by an arm of backwater, curved and glittering like the blade of a Turkish scimitar, is by far the most beautifully situated village on the Nile. It is the residence of the principal sheikh, and, if one may say so, is the capital of the cataract. The houses lie some way back from the river. The bay is thronged with native boats of all sizes and colors. Men and camels, women and children, donkeys, dogs, merchandise, and temporary huts put together with poles and matting crowd the sandy shore. It is Aswan over again, but on a larger scale. The shipping is tenfold more numerous. The trader's camp is in itself a village. The beach is half a mile in length, and a quarter of a mile in the slope down to the river. Mahata is, in fact, the twin port to Aswan. It lies not precisely at the other extremity of the great valley between Aswan and Philae, but at the nearest accessible point above the cataract. It is here that the Sudan traders disembark their goods for re-embarkation at Aswan. Barbaric-looking craft as these Nubian Kangias we had not yet seen on the river. They looked as old and obsolete as the Ark. Some had curious carved verandas outside the cabin entrance, Others were tilted up at the stern like Chinese junks. Most of them had been slavers in the palmy days of Defderder Bay, plying then as now between Wadi Halfa and Mahata, discharging their human cargoes at this point for reshipment at Aswan, and rarely passing the cataract, even at the time of inundation. If their wicked old timbers could have spoken, they might have told us many a black and bloody tale. Going up through the village and the palm gardens, and turning off in a north-easterly direction towards the desert, one presently comes out about midway of that valley to which I have made allusion more than once already. No one, however unskilled in physical geography, could look from end to end of that huge furrow and not see that it was once a river-bed. We know not for how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years the Nile may have held on its course within those original bounds neither can we tell when it deserted them. It is, however, quite certain that the river flowed that way within historic times. This is to say, in the days of Amenemhat III, circa B.C. 2800. So much is held to be proven by certain inscriptions which record the maximum height of the inundation at Senna during various years of that king's reign. The Nile then rose in Ethiopia to a level some twenty-seven feet in excess of the highest point to which it is ever known to attain at the present day. I am not aware what relation the height of this ancient bed bears to the levels recorded at Semna, or to those now annually self-registered upon the furrowed banks of Philae, but one sees at a glance, without aid of measurements or hydrographic science, that if the river were to come down again next summer in a mighty bore, the crest of which rose twenty-seven feet above the highest ground now fertilized by the annual overflow, it would at once refill its long-deserted bed and convert Aswan into an island. Granted, then, that the Nile flowed through the desert in the time of Amenemhat Third, there must at some later period have come a day when it suddenly ran dry. This catastrophe is supposed to have taken place about the time of the expulsion of the Hyksos, circa B.C. 1703, 
when a great disruption of the rocky barrier at Silsilis is thought to have taken place, so draining Nubia, which till now had played the part of a vast reservoir, and dispersing the pent-up floods over the plains of southern Egypt. It would, however, be a mistake to conclude that the Nile was by this catastrophe turned aside in order to be precipitated in the direction of the cataract. One arm of the river must always have taken the present lower and deeper course, while the other must of necessity have run low, perhaps very nearly dry, as the inundation subsided every spring. There remains no monumental record of this event, but the facts speak for themselves. The great channel is there. The old Nile mud is there, buried for the most part in sand, but still visible on many a rocky shelf and plateau between Aswan and Philae. There are even places where the surface of the mass is seen to be scooped out, as if by the sudden rush of the departing waves. Since that time the tides of war and commerce have flowed in their place. Every conquering Tutmos and Ramesses bound for the land of Cush led his armies that way. Sabacon, at the head of his Ethiopian hordes, took that shortcut to the throne of all the pharaohs. The French, under Desay, pursuing the Memluks after the Battle of the Pyramids, swept down that pass to Philae. Meanwhile the whole trade of the Sudan, however interrupted at times by the ebb and flow of war, has also set that way. We never cross those five miles of desert without encountering a train or two of baggage camels laden either with the European goods for the far south, or with oriental treasures for the north. I shall not soon forget an Abyssinian caravan which we met one day, just coming out from Mahatta. It consisted of seventy camels laden with elephant tusks. The tusks, which were about fourteen feet in length, were packed in half-dozens and sewn up in buffalo hides. Each camel was slung with two loads, one at either side of the hump. There must have been about eight hundred and forty tusks in all. Beside each shambling beast strode a barefooted Nubian. Following these, on the back of a gigantic camel, came a hunting leopard in a wooden cage, and a wild cat in a basket. Last of all marched a coal-black Abyssinian nearly seven feet in height, magnificently shawled and turbaned, with a huge scimitar dangling by his side, and in his belt a pair of enormous, inlaid, seventeenth-century pistols, such as would have become the holsters of Prince Rupert. This elaborate warrior represented the guard of the caravan. The hunting leopard and the wild cat were for Prince Hassan, the third son of the viceroy. The ivory was for exportation. Anything more picturesque than this procession, with the dust driving before it in clouds and the children following it out of the village, would be difficult to conceive. One longed for Jérôme to paint it on the spot. The rocks on either side of the ancient river-bed are profusely hieroglyphed. These inscriptions, together with others found in the adjacent quarries, range over a period of between three and four thousand years, beginning with the early reigns of the ancient empire and ending with the Ptolemies and Caesars. Some are mere autographs. Others run to a considerable length. Many are headed with figures of gods and worshippers. These, however, are for the most part mere graffiti ill-drawn and carelessly sculptured. The records they illustrate are chiefly votive. The passer-by adores the gods of the cataracts, implores their protection, registers his name, and states the object of his journey. The votaries are of various ranks, periods, and nationalities, but the formula in most instances is pretty much the same. 
Now it is a citizen of Thebes performing the pilgrimage to Philae, or a general at the head of his troops returning from a foray to Ethiopia, or a tributary prince doing homage to Ramesses the Great, and associating his suzerain with the divinities of the place. Occasionally we come upon a royal cartouche and a pompous catalogue of titles, setting forth how the Pharaoh himself, the golden hawk, the son of Ra, the mighty, the invincible, the godlike, passed that way. It is curious to see how royalty, so many thousand years ago, set the fashion in names just as it does to this day. Nine-tenths of the ancient travellers who left their signatures upon these rocks were called Ramesses or Tutmus or Usertasen. Others, still more ambitious, took the names of the gods. Ampesser, who hunted diligently for inscriptions both here and among the islands, found the autographs of no end of merely mortal almonds and hathors. Our three days' detention in the cataract was followed by a fourth of glassy calm. There being no breath of air to fill our sails, and no footing for the trackers, we could now get along only by dint of hard punting, so that it was past midday before the filet lay moored at last in the shadow of the holy island to which she owed her name. End of section 33